This podcast is brought to you by Brunner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbrunner.com and take your skills to the next level. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and my goal with each episode is to share stories of people who are recreating their lives or rising above challenges to write their next chapters with authenticity. These stories give me the courage to go after living my best life, and I think they will do that for you, too. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the show so this podcast can continue to inspire next chapters all over the world. The man you're about to hear from paved the way for extreme sports. He is a pioneer in skateboarding. Stacy Peralta went on to tour the world as the first ever professional skateboarder. As an entrepreneur, Stacy was among the first to see the earning potential of skating. And today, his passion for the sport has transitioned into being an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Stacy, welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much, Liz. It's really nice to be here, and I, I love the sound of your voice and your enthusiasm, so I'm really stoked to be here. Well, I'm stoked to have you here because once I started doing my research on you and I learned a lot about skateboarding, and I have to confess, I didn't know that much beforehand, but I have on occasion, when I've been channel surfing, stopped on skateboarding competitions, and I'm just blown away by what I see. You grew up in Venice Beach, California, and you and your friends wanted to be professional surfers. Skateboarding really didn't even exist as a sport at that time. When you couldn't surf, you guys skateboarded. That was your second love. And you guys did this in empty backyard swimming pools. Why skate in empty pools? You know, this was in the early 70s, mid 70s and late 70s. I actually made three big mistakes in my young life. One of the mistakes was I chose surfing to devote my life to. <laughs> At that time in the world, surfing was considered antisocial. Right. It was a completely antisocial thing to do. There was no way to make a living doing it. There was no like proper professional circuit. In 1974, the most famous surfer in the world was Jeff Hackman. And the rumor had it that he made 10 grand that year. Wow. And it was just enough money to keep him from waiting tables, okay? <laughs> yep. The number two and number three surfers of the world, uh, Jerry Lopez and Barry Kayapuni, they made their living shaping surfboards. So there was nothing to be had in surfing. And as a result of it, we were looked down upon by society and right. we were considered what was called surf bums. And that was the tagline. So it was antisocial. On top of that, I chose a second sport that was even worse, <laughs> which was skateboarding. And the reason you I fool, say this is you fool. <laughs> exactly. Well, skateboarding was illegal everywhere we did it. And I don't mean everywhere. I mean everywhere. Wow. So when you choose two sports like that, that you're deeply devoted to as a kid, and all you get is negative feedback, it tends to wear on your self-esteem. A friend of mine's father, we were debating him one day, and he wasn't saying mean things to us, but he goes, I just don't understand why you guys devote your time to this thing called surfing. He goes, what's the objective? He goes, you ride a wave, the wave disappears, and you have nothing to show for it. And I said, well, what's the objective of basketball? And he goes, there's a clear objective. Two teams pair off against one another in an allotted time on a court. Whoever gets the most baskets in the hoop in the allotted time wins, and they advance. So there's an objective. He goes, you guys sit out there every morning. You devote so much of your life to this, mm -hmm. and you walk off that beach with nothing. Mm. Had I been an articulate kid, I would have said what I would say today, but I wasn't. 
But when I glided across the face of a wave as a kid, I felt beautiful. Mm. It made me feel beautiful. Excuse me, I get emotional about it because every kid needs to find something that they feel beautiful doing. Because when you feel beautiful, you connect to yourself. Yes. You connect to the world. You connect to others. And that's why we did it, because it made us feel beautiful. Mm. When I watched my friends do it, they were beautiful. We did the same thing for skateboarding. I felt beautiful doing it, but I never got any feedback from anyone, any adult, except one day. We had a hippie mail lady that delivered mail. And I say hippie because she had hairy legs and she didn't wear a bra. <laughs> and she was a cool person. But I would skate in front of my house every single day. There was a fence, and that fence was a famous wave in Hawaii in my imagination. Well, one day she's coming down the street, and she suddenly turns from my house towards me, and I went, oh, no. She's going to yell at me because somehow my skateboarding affects her, her run, and she's going to be upset at me. And I was planning for what typically people in her position say to me, look, please don't do that around me. But instead... She came up to me and she goes, I, I watch you every day doing this. And she goes, I want to tell you something. What you do looks like ballet. Oh. It's so beautiful. But check this out. I was so conditioned to people telling me what I was doing was wrong that when she walked away, I thought, wow, she's got like a screwball head. Like, what's wrong with her? <laughs> That's how conditioned I was. And I feel bad about even thinking that about her to this day because she's the only adult that ever set her eyes on me as a skateboarder and said something positive. It's so awesome. And so that's the way it was. And so none of us were doing this with any thought of any of this ever turning into anything, but it's, it's what we loved doing. Now I got to get back to the empty pools, because if I remember reading some articles about you, the empty pools sort of gave you that feeling of a wave, that feeling of that being beautiful, even though you weren't on the water. You know, in every movie in the first act, there's something called the inciting incident. And the inciting incident is the thing that happens that propels the hero's journey. I had an inciting incident happen in my life that changed my life forever. And it was the birth of the urethane wheel, which allowed us to ride in swimming pools for the first time. What I need you to understand is prior to the urethane wheel, the wheels we rode were called clay wheels. Okay. And they were essentially laved rocks. Oh. They were exactly what Fred Flintstone used on his car. They were designed for roller skates. They were designed to be ridden on polished wooden floors inside of roller rinks. They were not designed for skateboards or to be ridden on sidewalks or streets. And so they were incredibly dangerous, but we still did it and we learned how to do it. So the urethane wheel is invented and suddenly the world opens up to us. Oh. And Los Angeles just happens to be, or was at the time, the swimming pool capital of the world. All of the pools were based on the glamour pools of the movie stars in Hollywood. And everyone wanted to have in their backyard one of these beautifully, voluptuously shaped pools. Well, it just turns out those pools were perfect <laughs> for skateboarding with urethane wheels on them. Perfect. And it also just happened to be that in 1974 and 5, L.A. had the worst drought on record. There were billboards in town encouraging couples to shower together. And you could legally only <laughs> shut, you could only flush your toilet after four uses. Oh, you could not water your lawn. And you couldn't fill your pool if it wasn't already filled. 
voila, empty pools for you to jump that's into, right? right? <laughs> and so that's what we did. And what we were doing was something incredibly illegal because we were doing it not only against the wishes of people that own these pools, but without their permission, without their knowledge, anything. And we had become very crafty at knowing when people worked, when they were at home, not home, where the neighbors are. <laughs> Over that time period, I wrote 125 pools. Oh my 125 gosh. pools illegally. We found, we figured out how to find them. We figured out how to do it. And what was happening is what we were doing was completely illegal. We didn't have the ability as kids to think that this could be a sport someday, although we were deeply dedicated to it and we were developing a sport. Yeah. We didn't know we were doing it. It was hard to comprehend that this could someday be something that other kids could do. That was the beginning of the skateboard revolution. Well, by the time you're 15, you're on the skateboarding team known as the Z-Boys. And then by 19, you're the highest ranked pro skater traveling Europe. You're treated like this rock star. And there's one incident that got you arrested when you got off the plane in England and you were holding your skateboard. What happened? <laughs> I was sponsored at the time by a company called Gordon and Smith. And they were the biggest manufacturer of surfboards and they would become the biggest manufacturer of skateboards. Well, I got a contract with them and they said, look, we're going to make a Stacy Peralta model skateboard. We're going to pay you 50 cents for every board we make. I'm 17 years old, okay? They say, if we make 20,000 of your boards a month, you're going to make 10 grand a month. I grew up thinking I was going to be a plumber because I did not do well in school. And one day I'm an aspiring plumber. Next day I'm a professional skateboarder. <laughs> G and Gordon Smith wanted to expand their markets. So they decided to send me to Europe, England, Germany, France, Spain, Switzerland, Sweden to demonstrate skateboarding and to open up markets. The plane lands in London and it's in, during the time that they land on the tarmac and they bring up the staircase. There's commotion outside the plane. I don't know what's going on. The flight attendant comes up to me. She goes, are you the American skateboard champion? I, I said, yes. She goes, follow me. I get up out of my chair. I grab my board out of the overhead bin. I follow her down the aisle and the doors open. And she goes, peek outside. And I look outside and the bottom of the stairs, it's loaded with photographers and journalists. And I look back at her and she goes, they're here for you. <laughs> and I look at her and I go, what am I supposed to do? She goes, well, why don't you go down and say g'day? So I, I walk down the stairs with my skateboard and suddenly I'm a professional athlete being pelted with questions about this new thing called skateboarding. Why are you here? Will the English kids like this? Why do the California kids like this? We hear this is illegal, blah, 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 all this stuff. And then one of the photographers says, hey, mate, would you spin a few twirls for us? So I drop my board and I spin 10 360s. And in 30 seconds, I'm arrested by airport police for skateboarding on the tarmac, which is illegal. My parents next morning are at the breakfast table. My dad's reading the LA Times as normal. He looks at the international section, which says American skateboard champion, Stacey Peralta, is arrested <laughs> immediately upon entering <laughs> England. My dad looks at my mom and goes, I thought this was above board. Like, are you still getting arrested? What? But that's what it was like. But the other aspect that I have to tell you here too is, and this really plays into the theme of my life, nobody told me or taught me how to be a professional athlete. Mm -hmm. They just assumed I knew how. When my mom dropped me off at LAX to get on this plane, she goes, remember, firm handshake, look him in the eye. <laughs> she didn't say, hey, look, you're an athlete now. Gordon Smith, my sponsors, they didn't say, hey, look, you're going to be doing promotions and things and this and that. No one said anything. I had to figure this out on the fly. And there had never been a professional right. skateboarder in the world. 
I'm going all over Europe. I'm being featured on television shows, radio shows, getting interviewed. Every city I go to, I have to go to the FM station and do this. Hey, I'm Stacy Peralta, you know, American skateboard champion. And when I'm in London, England, I always listen to radio station, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm going all over the place. I'm getting mobbed by kids. I'm getting all this attention and I'm having to figure out how to be an athlete, how to keep myself together, how to do this and how not to screw it up. And I noticed that many of my peers, they did lose it. They didn't know how to do it because nobody was showing us. That's not uncommon for a lot of young athletes today anyway, certainly. It's absolutely true. And I think when I look back, the only reason I believe that I had a head on my shoulders, because as I said, I did very poorly in school, is that I always had a job. Mm -hmm. From the time I can remember as a kid, I was 11 years old when I got my first full-time job, and that was delivering papers. At age 14, I got a job at a sandwich shop in Culver City where I prepped the food. At age 16, I got a job as a busboy at the Old Venice Noodle Company. So what happened is when I became a professional skateboarder, I had the context to realize this company wants to pay me to do what I'm already doing for free. Right. And I realized it was the greatest job in the world. You were in Pepsi ads, you were on Charlie's Angels, among other things. And at one point you were making more money skating than your parents even made. But when did you get to that point that you realized, you know what, this is not going to last forever? Were you injured? What what made you say, you know what, I've got to parlay this into something else. I've got to maximize my income in some way. I always have been able to look ahead. There's a term in surfing called looking down the line. When you ride a wave, you're actually not riding the wave at the moment. You're riding what you perceive the wave is going to be three turns from now because you're looking way down the line. And by looking down the line and estimating where you're going to be, it tells your body what to do at this moment. And I've applied that to my life my entire life. I am always in the moment, but I'm always looking down the line. Where is this going? And I could see that there was a shelf life, a limited shelf life to me being a professional skateboarder. And my name was on a skateboard, the Stacey Pralton, you know, model. But what I wanted was my name on a company. Mm. And I looked around at all the other skateboard companies and some of them were doing some things right. Many of them were doing a lot of things wrong. And I thought there's not one company in this industry that's doing it all right. And I thought, I want to be involved in that. Now, it may sound to you like I was some really... A confident kid. I wasn't at all. I wasn't confident whatsoever. I've been plagued with self-doubt my entire life, but there's something that I did have innately in me, and that's I've always been able to stay deeply in touch with what interests me mm-hmm. and what I love. And I've always been able to use desire as the cosmic fuel to propel what I'm interested in and keep my focus on what I'm interested in. Because in, in my opinion, it's desire that turns this world around yeah. and what gives this world motion. I was able to overcome my lack of education, lack of confidence. I was so perpetually on fire for what I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do was start my own company. And you did. And you, you formed one with George Powell, Powell Peralta. And you talked about your skateboard that had your name on it. But you also wanted to influence the sport. And you formed the legendary Bones Brigade. And this you called your dream team. And this was raw talent that you wanted to kind of support along the way. Skateboard companies don't exist without a skateboard team. 
Nike has their athletes that they sponsor, and those athletes are what drive shoe sales. Well, skateboard companies were no different. But back then, the common way to build a skateboard team when you formed a new company was just to simply steal pros from existing <laughs> teams, form a new company. But I thought I did not want to do that. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to find undiscovered talent, mm -hmm. young talent that no one had ever seen. And I wanted to develop them. The problem in doing so, it was a huge risk. When you buy something and you already know what it is, there's no risk involved. But when you take something that's undeveloped and know it's going to take two or three years to develop them, first of all, you don't know if they're ever going to develop. And secondly, what's to say you develop them and they quit and leave to go to somebody else? Like, for instance, Tony Hawk. Yeah. I picked him up at age 13. Tony Hawk was not a good skateboarder. Mm -hmm. He did not show the promise of what he would someday become. He did show something, and it was more his mental attitude. But as far as physical talent, he actually showed himself to be deficient. But there was something unique about him. But I also had other guys on that team, Rodney Mullen, who's considered the Mozart of skateboarding, Steve Caballero, Mike McGill. These are all seminal, iconic, historic figures now in skateboarding. And I picked them all up when they were 13 years of age and developed them. And we developed together as a team and they would go on to become not only the most successful competitive team in skateboarding, but the most successfully innovative team because the vocabulary of the moves, the maneuvers that were invented by this group is simply unparalleled in history. Right. That was my goal. And, and the reason I wanted to do this is because I had been on what, what is now considered the greatest indigenous skateboard team of all time, which was the Zephyr team. And getting on that team as a kid when I was 15 or 16 was the greatest dream of my life. Had my life ended at that moment, I think I would have been okay because I got on that team. But that team exploded and blew up within a year and a half. And it was so heartbreaking because we had such a great team and we had everything going for us and it broke apart. Mm. And so when I formed the Bones Brigade, the idea was I'm going to go the full four innings. I'm going to take these guys from the beginning all the way to the end. And I did. You did. And all of them today, they all own homes. None of them have been to rehab. They're all still involved in skateboarding. They're upstanding human beings. They're historic figures. And I'm very, very happy and very, very proud of that because they made it through this very challenging experience. You know, it, it's a gift to get to be a pro athlete, but everyone thinks it's just a slam dunk and it's not. It's filled with incredible hard work, disappointment, discouragement, failure, pain, you know, everything. It takes a lot to make it through a career and they all made it. You had a powerful influence on them, clearly. All right. So somewhere along the way, you developed this taste for filmmaking and production. And I, I even remember you telling a story about buying an eight millimeter camera at a thrift shop so that you could record you and your friends doing these techniques so that you did look beautiful. And this is certainly before all the extreme maneuvers. And then you go on to developing even more films. In 2001, your documentary, Dogtown and Z-Boys, really took Sundance Film Festival by storm. You win two major awards, Audience Award and a Directing Award. And this particular film, Dogtown and Z-Boys, was based on your own life. How did all that come together? 
1999, there used to be a rock and roll magazine that was kind of a competitor of Rolling Stone, mm -hmm. and it was called Spin Magazine. And Spin Magazine did a story that was titled Dogtown in Search of Skateboarding's Founding Fathers. A number of Hollywood production companies got a hold of that story and thought, wow, this would make a great feature film. I started getting calls from people about selling my life rights to that story, and I was so angry that they got there before I did because I'd always thought that'd be a great story. So I literally took a hike one day. I was living in Malibu at the time. I took a hike up this mountain. And when I got to the mountaintop, I got this idea, which was screw the feature film. I'll make this a documentary. <laughs> and so I went and over the next course of a year, met some people, finally arranged to get financing, which wasn't easy at the time. We were able to make the documentary for a tiny amount of money and a lot of things opened up for us, meaning we got an amazing soundtrack. A lot of the great 70s bands decided to work with us for the paperboy wages we could offer them and licensing their music. And that was my first feature film. And what happened is we ended up beating Hollywood to the punch. I never knew I was going to be a documentary filmmaker. Seven years prior to that, I was directing television and writing screenplays. And I had hoped to be an independent screenplay writer and, and director, but my life turned and took that different direction and it was the better direction for me. You've been called the father of modern skateboarding and you went from that career to being an entrepreneur to now filmmaker. While our listeners around the world may not have had that exact career trajectory, they may be considering a shift. What's the secret to creating a next chapter? I think one of the most important things in your life is you have to follow your heart. Your heart is where your desires are and where your deepest interests are. The problem is the heart never explains itself. It gives you clues and intuitions and premonitions, but it never explains why it's given them to you. It's the mind that is continually explaining things to us. And so when these dreams emerge out of our heart, they require that we take leaps of faith because our heart doesn't explain itself. But our mind, needing everything to be linear and everything to be uh, sequential, demands that our dreams be linear and sequential, and they aren't. Our dreams are completely irrational. They make no sense whatsoever. And so you have to learn to live with your dream in a state of uncertainty and insecurity as it develops within you. And then you have to have, be able to take the chance of going, I am embarking on the unknown and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Because when you embark on the unknown, you're embarking on the unknown. <laughs> and too often people are not willing to do that. They're not willing because they, they get too afraid to live in uncertainty and to live in the insecurity of it. And that's why I said to you earlier, one of the keys to my success, because I didn't have education or confidence, is I've always been deeply in touch with what comes out of my heart and what comes out of my heart are my interests and those dreams. And I've learned how to protect them and I've learned how not to let my brain burn them. Because what happens is when your brain demands that a dream makes sense, it ends up withering that dream. It's like putting too much sun on a rose petal. It'll burn up. You know, the other thing too that might be helpful to some is I don't believe our gifts and talents belong to us. And that has helped me make career changes, which means I don't believe whatever gift I had as a skateboarder belongs to me. I am responsible to it. I was the custodian of it, but it doesn't belong to me. And so if you can look at your career, you look at your talent as something that you don't own, something that you can't peg your identity to, then when it comes time to letting that post, that past career go, it's easier because it doesn't belong to you anyways.
And when you let your past career go, you've completed the cycle. And until you let it go, you have not completed the cycle. And when I let skateboarding go, it was the most important thing I've ever done in my life. When I let my identity in that business go, that I am going to pursue filmmaking now, I am no longer in the skateboarding world. I'm no longer a guy that walks down the street and needs to see kids who are 14 years of age with my name splashed across their chest. When I was able to let that identity go, my career was complete. Mm. And I have never looked back. And I think it's, a, it's the best thing I've ever done. I left an identity that was burned into my DNA. And it freed me. Too often, people, their futures are held hostage by their past. They're still in love with their past. And it prevents them from moving to the future that they'd really like. Mm -hmm. Another thing is it's really dangerous becoming an adult. Because what happens when we become an adult is we think, well, I'm an adult now. I've got some success under my belt. I shouldn't feel insecure anymore. I shouldn't feel uncertain anymore. I shouldn't feel any of these things because I'm an adult and I'm successful. And I think that is really dangerous thinking. I now put myself in situations where I'm insecure and uncertain because it keeps me young and fresh and it keeps me vulnerable. And if I'm vulnerable, I'm open to life. I love that. I got to tell people that they can follow you and learn more about your life wisdom and your experience. Simply just follow you on Instagram, Stacy Peralta. And I know that they, all they have to do is Google your name and they're going to find out where all your documentaries are so they can watch all of those as well. Stacy, thank you so much for taking us through this amazing life of yours, the career chapters that you've had and, and reminding all of us that we can make that shift if we follow our passion and we follow our heart. Thank you so much. You got it. Thanks, Liz. I really enjoyed this. And thanks to all of you for listening. You never know where life may take you. But if you're open to following your passions, following your dreams, chances are you'll find a way to live your best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and fast twitch media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.